Yes, and and he was about to hang up. Uh, so I said, oh, oh, stop, stop, dad, dad, sorry. You know, there is something. And, you know, I said to him, and it was very difficult just to put it in words, but I was saying, hey, I don't know whether any one of our siblings, me included, said that to you, but I just really want to say that I love you. And when I said that word, I love you, something broke in all of the walls, the defensive mechanism, all of that had broken away. And, um, and I love you, I, I, I wanna honor you, and I appreciate that you sacrificed so much to get us through life and helping us. And, and it was so quiet at the end, uh, other end of the phone. And then soon after I hear only like click, he hung up. You know what time it is? It's mime time. Aaron H. Kim is the founder of Kairos Capital Private Limited, a Christian family office consultancy incorporated in Singapore. He's the author of Pursued by the Maker, a global citizen's journey into the heart of God, released at the beginning of the year. It's an autobiography filled with gems, interesting stories, and life lessons for anyone trying to figure themselves out in life who are running away from their problems or family or for the Korean-Asian diaspora in particular. I love this book. He's a Christian-Korean-German who's worked and traveled all over the world, living a full life, now hustling, making deals, and raising four kids together with his wonderful wife, Reese. He's an amazing, hardworking, intelligent, spiritual leader, businessman, and role model, and he's a great friend. This conversation's the longest on mime time yet and filled with great stuff. Us both being Korean diaspora who grew up in the church, we talk about everything. We talk about identity, family relationships, being from two different cultures and combining the best of both worlds, Christianity, living and traveling all over the world, pushing yourself, living meaningful, fulfilling lives filled with understanding compassion, adventure, determination, fortitude, grace, and love, and all that great stuff. From prodigal son to prodigious father, Aaron's story is an amazing memoir on how to live a rich, fulfilling, ambitious, organized, and meaningful life. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, comments, feedback are deeply appreciated. You can slide into my DMs at MimeTime on Instagram or email me the traditional way Betty Betty Old School email to mime at mimetime.com. Oh. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mime Time. Oh, baby. Today we have a very special guest. I say that to all my guests because they're all very special. We have Aaron Kim. He's a Korean German brother who I met last year very auspiciously, and I am just so excited for today's episode. Aaron, how are you? Thank you. I'm good. Good to see you, mine. Yeah, it's been a while. I just want to tell the audience a bit of a background of how we met. So when I met Aaron and his family for the first time, they were playing on a beach in Yangyang, uh, speaking different languages to their kids, speaking German and English to their kids. I'm like, who is this family? They were a friend of, of the Mueller's who uh, I happened to go on this beach trip with. So 
we started talking right at a campfire later in the evening and Aaron just told me his story about growing up in Germany being Korean German and how he and his wife Reese are raising these four beautiful kids going on a camping trip on the east coast of Korea because at the time I said I had a podcast and Aaron you said you you were finishing up a book so here we are I it, it only took a year <laughs> and uh I finished reading your book Pursued by the Maker um, it's very well written, man, and uh, I really enjoyed it. When, what made you want to write the book? Maybe just as a bit of a background information, um, I'm a product of a ESL, English as Second Language. You know, I, I was educated in German, and I have uh, Korean on my belt, but English was my first foreign language. Writing the book was probably on my list for a long time because I discovered my family had um, incredible stories, which was very interesting, even tracing the ancestry roots of Kyungju Kim, which you happen to be as well a Kyungju Kim, right? That is right. I discovered that lots of stories that were passed down from one generation to another, just as anecdotal stories, but no one actually really put an effort to put it into us, you know, into a writing. So, you know, it came to our generation and uh, no one actually took interest. So it started with that and a couple other promptings. I was at a point in my life where, you know, it was all kind of culminating to this wonderful a point. The trigger happened in Switzerland. Um, I was at an event, a conference, a Christian businessman conference. And on my uh, during my time there, I had a friend, Jeff. He uh, is, you know, he sat me down uh, for breakfast, and you know, we got to talk. And two hours later, his conclusion of this entire first meeting was that I have an incredible story that I need to that I'm not allowed to hold it back. I need to share it with the world because you will um, speak into other people. That's how it came about. Yeah, and I think the timing of it all is very auspicious because for one, we are first generation, I guess, first generation immigrants to the West as far as our family, line is family lines are concerned. And you know, if there's no one in our families, family histories, that had the time to kind of sit down and was educated enough to write out the stories of their lives and their parents and their grandparents. Well, what better time than now in this generation where the whole world has English as the lingua franca, we can publish books and not only that, just share them online and promote our stories over the internet. Like the whole world can hear your story now, right? How, how crazy is this timing, this world that we live in? And I just want to say, I really enjoyed the book, like all the way through from beginning to end. And first, I want to ask, what was it like for you to grow up in Germany? Hey, I just feel like I, I need to share this. Um, oh, please. Yeah, go, there, go ahead. There was, there was some very interesting circumstances while I was reading, the, uh, writing the book. I don't know if I told you, I wrote the entire uh, 111,000 words in 30 days uh, while fasting on water. So my wife made it possible for me to write day and night, day and night, and 30 days consecutively writing, I was done with the, with the main manuscript. I thought that was really interesting because, you know, given that I'm an ESL product and all of the other reasons why I wouldn't be or shouldn't be writing a book, getting it done so fast, and I felt like, you know, you know somebody else was really doing the typing. Um, so the story of mine that I'm telling was written under very um, special circumstances. That is just as a, another background how this book came about. 
That's that's great. This, so this product is like the result of some uh, ketogenic fasting and the Holy Spirit, I suppose. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, I um, on a regular day, I I wouldn't be able to write a straight sentence in English, uh, you know, without making a couple of mistakes here and there. But that uh, you know, those daily days were absolutely special because you know I knew exactly what I would be writing in the next line, the line before. Uh, the hands were working on their own. And um, that's how, you know, the story was born. And, you know, I found a chronological uh, timeline in the story while maintaining that tone and voice consistently. Yeah, so just to tell you uh, about the process. Yeah, I, I, I love hearing about the process. And I love that it is a consistent tone from the beginning to, you know, like, you know, some background on the history of Korea, going to your grandparents to, you know, about their stories and the things that they went through about your parents and how they struggled and how they met and raised a family. Literally all the way from the Shilla dynasty to your birth, to your childhood, to your adulthood, to you raising kids, to us meeting, because the mm. book concludes the month before we met in July, 2020, when we met, cause you and I met in August. And so I was half expecting <laughs> to like, uh, like read more about, you know, what happened last year, but you had already finished the book by then almost actually. Mm. That was mm. so cool because it, I, I almost get chills just thinking about it, just the timing of it, right? You, you wrote, cause it's not often you meet someone on a beach and they say, hey, I just wrote a book. And it has like my whole family's life story up until we meet like this month. Like it's just chronicles like my whole life and what I'm about, my personality, like my vision for the world, my, my passion and love for my family and humanity. Like I just wrote all this before I met you. You have a podcast. Let's, let's talk about it. Yeah. And the time yeah. is really auspicious. Yeah. We call that uh, divine timing, right? Divine yeah. appointment. And, you know, just a favor that uh, we've had before each other um, meeting, we didn't know each other at all. And, you know, a small little co um, commonality, like having the same kind of Gyeongju uh, Kimchi as a last name, um, evolved into a, a, a great friendship um, over the year. And, you know, you were kind enough to host us uh, over to for dinner. And, you know, you were always uh, generous uh, towards my family, my wife and we, uh, my kids, uh, remember you quite fondly, and um, I've always expressed that to you. I'm not uh, ashamed of expressing what I think and what I feel for somebody. But um, back to your question about what, what, um, growing up in Germany, how was it for me? I think, you know, um, I was born and raised in Germany, but I, I am a bicultural kid because, you know, very early on, my parents um, couldn't really afford to raise me on top of my brother. So I was sent away to be raised with my grandmother um, pre, like, I think around two or three years old. Um, so there are two cultures that live within me. But I think the most significant time, the most significant time that kind of encapsulates my experience as a as a teenager, as a, as a youngster in, in Germany was, earmarked by uh, trying to be somebody that I'm not and predominantly driven by this uh, anxiety of uh, trying to fit into this German culture as a foreigner. Obviously, being Asian, I think a lot of people who migrated into Asians migrating into West can relate. You know, there is 
that look, you know, and you're questioning, you're puzzled about your own personal look. And if you have certain traumatic events or you have certain chip on the shoulder, uh, some uh, you're, you're searching for significance in life, you know, those things really trigger uh, anxiety in life. And I, and so the way I was trying to cover that up and be somebody else was me playing my Asian strength, right? So I was really, really good in martial arts, especially in uh, Taekwondo. I was a uh, state champion. I was a uh, runner up to the international German Taekwondo championships. And I was um, won several uh, larger tournaments. And that sort of fed into my identity trying to be somebody because out of the really need of brokenness. But I love, I love Germans and Germany today, but honestly, back in the days, I, I'm not sure whether that was the thing. I was hanging out mostly with uh, foreigners uh, who, were, who migrated into Germany, Turks, Moroccans, you know, Yugoslavians, people that are living in the fringes, right? We all lived in some form of modern ghettos of uh, your high rises, uh, you know, your social projects, uh, in, we call them in Germany, uh, which are basically government sponsored uh, living uh, environment, not your typical beautiful garden and the house and, you know, and the car type of uh, German places. That's right, because yeah, Asians so. only know how to live in apartments in cities. <laughs> Because uh, so the Japanese and the Koreans would live in those German projects, right? But they, yeah. they, uh, but like they have you know good reputation. They were hardworking, but the people who lived there, the other foreigners or immigrants, you know, didn't have a reputation. It was known to be like you know dirty and known for you know crime and theft and stuff like that, which is pretty ironic. I tell you what, you know, and and most of my friends, non-Koreans, non-Japanese, they are still there. But the Koreans have always take that as a springboard and they have moved on to better places and bigger places. Obviously, the same is true for my family, but that was my sort of my upbringing. Yes, Germany, we speak German, but, you know, the background was very different. Yes, and I like to bring up this point, which is within any population in a given society, there's a spectrum of people who are who have different risk tolerance, right? Some people are like, we have to do the rules, we have to do this, this is the safest thing, and other people who, you know, are more risk tolerant. So there's risk aversion and risk tolerance. And I have a feeling that within Asian diaspora and Korean diaspora as well, for us Kyopos, Chewe Dongpo, we come from a certain part percentage of the population that is perhaps more risk tolerant, either out of necessity or some sort of I don't know, epigenetic impetus that forces us, that forced us or through circumstances, right? That forced us to go into another environment, whether it's uh, Japan or Australia, Canada, America, Germany, and so on. So I think because we, we had nowhere else to go, a lot of us, right? So, so we had to adapt to another culture and go to the other side of the world, literally the other side of the planet to a far distant land and learn another people's language. And so I think what that does is, in spite of the struggles and the loneliness and the identity crisis and what have you, what happens is we become so much more resilient. If we choose to be so, we become so much more resilient and adaptable to many different situations, which is why I think that we are more perhaps global and internationally connected and um, more, we have more drive and perhaps aggressiveness 
assertiveness towards getting what they want because we were not, uh, you know, I like to think we were not stagnant, not to not knock on the mainland or the people who st- stayed in the mainland, but we, we had this, we had some more risk tolerance in us. And because of that, we have this rich, priceless, personal, cultural reward, which is we have these perspectives and we have the, the soul or the character of different cultures as well endowed to us very luckily. Like I, I think I see myself as very Korean, even though I grew up as a whitewashed American, I still see myself carrying on uh, Korean culture and Korean heritage just in my own way. This is, I am an, a manifestation of the, the Korean legacy in an American way, in a cheeseburger way. I'm a kimchi cheeseburger, right? And you are a kimchi bratwurst, right? Or That's you're a right. Kimchi sausage. You're kimchi sauerkraut. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I meant. Yeah, that's your kimchi sauerkraut. So, and I think that's a, that's a beautiful fusion. It's a beautiful combination. And, and I also grew up thinking, why wasn't I Korean enough, right? Um, I, I had this difference with my older brothers who spoke, grew up speaking Korean in Korea before we moved to America. And my parents who spoke very heavily broken accented English. So I always had this big divide between me and my, the rest of my family. And I always thought, am I Korean? Am I American? I'm clearly not like the other Korean people that I know. I can't even speak Korean. I only speak English. But, you know, I go to school. I'm the only Asian or I'm the only Korean. So where do I fit in? Where do I relate to? And, of course, I, mm-hmm. I'm a broken record. That's why I have this podcast. I just bring this up and I talk about it and I go at different perspectives. But now, what I after coming to Korea and living here for eight plus years, and having learned Korean to an intermediate level and understanding the culture and all that, I realized something: I will never be Korean. I will never be Korean, Korean enough. And uh, no matter how hard I try, and whether I get a master's, PhD, and master the language, I will because of my life circumstances and how I formed and things to be on my control, I will be who I am, which is very like American Western individualist to my core. And I, as I know you mm-hmm. are as well, to a degree. So, mm-hmm. so what I'm trying to say is there are enough Korean people who are Korean, but then I can be the Korean American guy and I can be my own unique Korean American self. I can be mime. You know, I'm not like the typical LA Gyopo or the, t- or the New York Gyopo who grew up with their, in their own communities. I'm more kind of estranged and out, outcast like adoptees who really grew up around like white neighborhoods. So mm. um, we all have these different experiences and growing up in different lands and whatever. And it's a str- growing up, it may have been a struggle, but now I look at it as the greatest blessing. It's like I'm, mm. I'm very humbled and grateful to have grown up mm. in America and to be to have these cultures in my own. And mm. what I love about you is uh, you are also living that in your own, you've lived that in your own life and you're living that out with your kids. Because I remember when we met, you said you want to combine like the best of both worlds for your children. Mm. For me, like I see that you have this beautiful, strong Faustian spirit uh, that you mm. want to imbue with your children while also holding the best, most honorable parts of you know, our Korean heritage as well. Mm. so i just rambled on a bit but yeah no no um i i totally agree with you and um it's yeah i you know we have a tendency to in order to understand the other person we need to put them into a certain box that we create for them 
And, uh, you know, I've certainly done it. And, you know, I'm trying to get away from it, see the person for who they are. Now, having grown up in Germany or in the U.S., that in itself uh, is a huge factor. But also having come back, in your case, you know, you came back to Korea, right? You know, in my case, instead of staying in Germany, um, I migrated. I migrated just like my parents migrated to Germany. I went to uh, the U.S. and, and, you know, including the U.S., but many other places, which, you know, I just want to talk about that drive that you described, you know, that risk taking, you know, because we we were given uh, better opportunities. We were given a choice, which some of our parents never had. The previous generation did not have fulfillment in their life, but they have lots of lots of sacrifices, you know, unspoken sacrifices. And so when I felt, you know, and that has actually ha- uh, has helped me a lot to stay on the course, stay focused and, and try to do something with my life, whether I succeeded or not, that's, you know, that's not for anyone to judge or even for myself, you know, life is just ongoing. But along the way, you know, you take you know, take up so many different type of lessons that continues to shape. Yeah. One example of that is, you know, having come back to Korea and not understanding the Korean culture uh, in the fullest sense, although I'm fluent in Korean, uh, is there used to be a wall. And I say, I, you know, the way I talk and I, he got picked up, by, you know, picked up by my father-in-law, he said, hey, how come you always describe the Koreans versus you? Like, aren't you a Korean yourself? And, you know, I, it, that was a barrier. That was an invisible barrier, a cultural thing that I would never be able to penetrate. I, would, I was not an insider. And I didn't understand how that uh, made shift of the cultural communities and cliquishness and how that is actually driven. Until recently, I discovered Koreans tick in a certain way and we described them to be collective, uh, culturally collective-minded, whereas, you know, maybe a German-minded person is individual. Um, They have a different way of uh, thinking, and they like to think as units of families, units of communities. Either you are with us or you're against us. And you, you can clearly see that in how people behave in the subways, right? You know, they bump each other, they enter into some other people's space, you know, they're rude and they're pushy. But as soon as you get to know them and, you know, you require somebody, some introduction, then they are polite, they are kind, they are nice, and they're forgiving. And so this uh, paradoxical behavior created a a barrier that I wasn't able to uh, penetrate. But now, more and more, as I understand, I am, you know, I become a lot more forgiving towards my own people. And I am feeling like I'm becoming more Korean than before. That's awesome. And I feel more Korean than ever before. And even when I go back to the States, you know, my friends say, Mime, you, you lost weight. <laughs> I'm not as American <laughs> in that res- respect anymore. And, and they say, Mime, you, you look more Korean. I didn't even realize it, but maybe just the way that I, I dress and how Korean people, ur- Korean urban nights, you know, put themselves together and whatever. And, you know, I even occasionally do makeup, right, for, for a particular event or whatnot. You know, it's been a lot of fun. You know, actually, I think coming to Korea was the best decision in my life. I've just had so much fun, you know, working and meeting people and trying different things, traveling around the country. 
while learning Korean, learning about myself and asking myself questions about like my family and trying to find out who I am. So I think it, it's amazing that, you know, we have this opportunity as 20th, 21st century Asian males, right, who uh, thanks to the sacrifices of our parents and their parents' generation and so on, that we have, we live in this time of great peace, you know, this time of prosperity where we can afford to go to countries all over the world. I mean, we, our parents were lucky enough to, to go to a far land with, with like, you know, everything that they had, right? The, the immigrant aspiration, the struggle, the dream to go to the West, to a more developed country and to like, uh, try to make something happen. And then their fruits are us. And then we have traveled way more. Like you're, so your, your family line is like asymptotic because it's like your parents, Germany, and then you are born. But then you go literally all over the world, like to every continent except Antarctica. Uh, mm. You've been to right, around Europe, Germany, Austria, and probably some other countries. I, I can't remember right now in Europe, but the UK, you, right, you worked in the UK for a bit. Then you went to school in Hawaii. You also, you know, lived in Canada for a while and you learned French in, in Montreal and you worked in Hong Kong in finance. You went to Fiji surfing. You traveled to Australia surfing. You went to all these places, right? And you went, you went, you've been to Singapore as well. You've lived, you, you had your wedding, honeymoon in Bali. You're able to have all these experiences and meet people, interesting people, unique individuals from all over the world. And I similarly, I haven't been all over the world. I haven't been to Europe, but I've mostly traveled within Asia. And within Asia, I've met all the locals of the different nations I've been to, as well as, you know, unique expats or people like me. Like we're this, it's really, I, I look at this time and I, I have this like a motif or motto, which is like, I am my ancestor's wildest dream. My, my ancestors' <laughs> wildest dreams. And I think that's what we are because like our, our great Chosun or Kyungju ancestors, right? They could never imagine that we would be living this life today, speaking uh, mm. the white man's language because that's what everyone in this world speaks. And like we, we go mm. on these adventures and we go on these struggles and we use the internet and fly on planes and in metal cars. Um, it, it just blows my mind. I'm really happy and glad to be able to have this conversation with you, even just this, yeah. right? Not only can we talk face-to-face, -face, even though we're in the same country, but we're not in the same room, mm -hmm. but I'm recording this, I'm going to edit this, I'm going to publish this, and then put, anyone in the world can listen to this conversation as well mm -hmm. and take from it what they want. We're talking about growing up in Germany. and For mm -hmm. you, what, is, what, is, uh, what are you most proud of in terms of your... Korean identity and perhaps your German identity. And so is it limited down to those two? No, no, not necessarily. No. Like however you define, I mean, what, how do you identify? Well, as, as I explained earlier, I'm trying not to put certain labels trying to describe myself. But these days I really feel like I'm, I'm being identified by living through my kids. My kids are all, Ian is 10, Liam is nine. Then you have Anais, who is seven. And then we have Noah, who is four. So all of those four have unique characters and they inherited some of my traits as well as uh, from Reese, my wife. So watching them grow is basically how, you know, giving more and more sacrifice in life for, to make sure that 
they also have a exponential choices and options going forward. I think that sort of、um, living is something that the Bible teaches, and you know, shaping, molding, and shaping kids and. And that path is really the legacy that you want to build, and 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 I'm proud of it. I'm, I'm I'm certainly this is operation everywhere, still ongoing construction sites, but at least I'm intentional. At least I have made a choice, and I'm standing my ground, trying to get the kids、uh, moving forward. And and through that, I get a lot of gratitude towards、uh, my parents because that's what they eventually did. Not out of the sheer situation, circumstances, living in Germany or having migrated, but it was essentially the sacrificial love that that Korean's parents put in place, right? So that's my answer. Proud of seeing my kids、uh, live and growing up and investing into their life. That's awesome. Identifying as a as a father and appreciating what your parents did for you and and your brother. You mentioned the Bible, right? So let's get into Christianity for a bit. How old were you when you had your first religious experience? I mean, when did you get into church, and when did it really start to resonate with you, your faith? Okay, I think I have a few very dis- distinct experiences. I mean, I was raised by my grandmother, who was a female elder at the Korean Methodist Church. She was quite devoted. She had lost her husband,、uh, my grandfather, in the war, and she was mourning. And anyway, her faith and her spiritual lifestyle was really sort of like transferred to me. Like it jumped the whole generation, my parents' generation, and it came to me as the next generation because I was in her proximity, and it, it was an influence. That was really the the seed was laid early on, but、uh, my parents are non-believer. My parents don't even go to church. They actually, my mom was a Buddhist. Then she was baptized into the Presbyterian Church, and then she got baptized into the Catholic Church. Now she's a Roman Catholic. Similarly, my dad, same course. He tells me a funny story how he fell in love with a. A Jehovah Witness girl, and he didn't know about that, and you know he chases her into the Jehovah Witness temple、um, <laughs> just to be, you know, pulled by the ear by my grandmother, dragging him out of the out of the bad place, and you know that was it. That was his religious experience, and he's、uh, ultimately very suspicious of cults and you know churches and all of that. So he's he's an intellectual man. He's a He's a go-getter. He feels he doesn't need church or, or religion, and so this was my upbringing. This wasn't forced onto us. We didn't. It wasn't groomed even. So my entire adolescent life, I didn't have church. Matter of fact, I was so anti-church at some point because we had this lady. She was a pastor's wife, and she kind of tracked us down. That we lived in this really poor neighborhood, and she brought kimchi to us, and you know, trying to be nice to us. And we felt like a sense of shame, sense of embarrassment, but also you know, nuisance. We didn't want to talk to you know the pastor's wife and having follow her into church. No, then that's not. You know, even I didn't want that. So that's、um, so the kind of the background, but I had a spiritual encounter. I was probably around sixteen. This is、uh, described in the book. My my buddy, good friend, one of my best friends, Sean Chang. 
he moves into the neighborhood, you know, and his father works for Korean Airways. So they're, you know, they're the Korean expats into Germany. And they live in this uh, same neighborhood, Sigmund Freud. It's called Sigmund Freud Street. Mm. Imagine that. And uh, he takes me to this so seemingly a, a party, and I follow him to the party. And then it turns out it wasn't a Korean party. It was actually a youth gathering for a church, church mission. Yeah, and that one thing led to another, and I just realized there was more to it. And I hadn't, one day I was praying with doing a service, and I just realized, um, you know, there was this whole born-again uh, moment the preaching was really powerful. And then I realized my life was meaningless in, in a sense without the presence of Christ in my life as a Lord. And I felt like, you know, I was only 16 years and how much wrong could I have done in life that I call myself a sinner. But every sin in my life was kind of like presented to me in like a vision or, you know, just sort of like, you know, I remember all of these things. And which led me to pray a prayer of repentance. And I knew something had changed, something had, uh, my life was transformed. Yeah, and that was my reality, but that wasn't the reality that my parents lived. It, it wasn't what my family believed in. And so very quickly, I um, got into uh, trouble with my father who really disapproved this entire experience and he discounted it and he wanted to straighten me out and present fresh objectives in life like you should learn more you should get into good schools or you know i was doing already really really well excuse me you said that yeah. you shared your spiritual experience with your father and he discounted it yeah yeah i see that must have been hard man yeah i mean discounting uh, is one thing, but you know, it was literally a persecution. You know, I would get my beat ups uh, for sneaking out uh, to go to church. I mean, he didn't like the fact that I was serving at a church with, you know, I didn't play any instruments. I, you know, I was just, I was just gifted with technology. So I was doing all of the, you know, the tapes, uh, multiplying the sermon tapes and, you know, uh, working on the computer and doing all sorts of other things. But he didn't like it. So, you know, and my mom didn't like the fact that because of my behavior, my dad was always upset. And he, she used to yell at me that there's no peace in the house. Uh, my brother was couldn't understand what I was up to. My sister was sharing the room with me. She said, oh, why do you have to create so much uh, fuss in the, in, in the family life? Why is it so important to you? You know, are we important to you? You know, is it just a church? And, you know, I was young and I was, I had experienced something that was so powerful, I couldn't deny it. But, you know, all good things have a short ending, you know, a short lifespan. So two years into years of persecution, my church ended up getting imploded, meaning they fired the pastor, which is a typical thing in, in Korean churches overseas, the diaspora church. They fire the pastor and then the youth group dissolves and the elders fight over the money. And, you know, within a span of a couple of weeks, that church was no more. And to me, that was a problem. I had a serious problem with that. How come, you know, I have to endure two years of hardship at home, trying to be a faithful Christian or trying to live out or discover even 
what faith is all about. And, you know, God is letting a church go into such a mess and eventually uh, kicking out the pastor who came out to Germany to minister to youth groups, right? Long story short, that's that's point in time when I turned around. I, I, I did a 180 and I walked away from Christianity. I was 18 years old and um, never ever did I return. I was bitter. I was angry. I, I felt it was, uh, it was, um, it was, um, and the more I think rationally, and the more I started to reason and question the motives or question the experience, I started to believe in it, that none of that was real. It was all um, a product of my imagination. Uh, and so this is why I moved and, and, and I needed a replacement. I needed to replace that Christian life or God-centric life with some dem demigods. And that became extreme sports for me. And surfing was the greatest expression of my uh, search because it's such a spiritual sports. You get to travel into remote places of the world, deal with indigenous people, uh, live in remote places with the sole goal of surfing amazing waves. I grew up watching The Endless Summer, you know, the entire surfing movie scenes. I said, okay, I'm done. I, I want to get away from this. I want to get away, from, especially from my biological father. My, and that represents, uh, represented how much I wanted to get away from God. He gave me trouble for believing in God. Now I wanted to get away from him and get away from church and Christian life. And so that's why, you know, I traveled uh, with the goal not to return, not having to return. So it's sort of like the prodigal son story plus Odyssey, great uh, works of literature. And I was, the, I was the guy. I was living it. I was experimental, um, trying different things, you know. You were um, the guy. You were the only guy. You're the only Korean German in the world that these people in all these disparate countries are ever going to meet. That's like, hey, I came to your country. I came to your little island just because I wanted to surf. I came to Australia because I wanted to surf, right? Just. I can't imagine the people, how, how much of a sore thumb you must have stuck out throughout your travels and your studies and your work. I think it's really cool, right? Because with that, you must have had some trepidation, right? Or some like, oh, I'm going, but I don't know anyone. And maybe I don't have much money, but I'm going to go and make it work. And then you meet people, amazing people, and some people help you out and you help some other people out and you make money, you make ends meet. That's so stunning and brave. And I think it's really unprecedented, right? For just, I mean, just anybody in general, but even for diaspora, it's really amazing that, you know, you were able to run away from your problems, run away from your family, but then you realize, you know what, I need to go back and face my reality. I need to face the real world. So you did it like as a man. That's really cool. There's so many things in the book that I want to talk about with uh, the Bible and Christianity. You know, I briefly, I grew up in the church myself. Uh, my parents were Christian. My brothers grew up Christian as well. And uh, they, one of them in high school or college, he fell away. And the second one, I think he still goes. And me, I was, I think I was like the most gung-ho about it. Like I was the most passionate and I was the most religious of the brothers, I think, in my adolescence. And I clung to faith because it gave me identity, because it gave me the feeling that like, oh, I'm the son of God. You know, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. There's nothing more powerful for a sense of identity than that strong sense of Christian belief for me at the time. 
So when like, you know, the rest of my world was depressed and I didn't find any meaning in school or whatever, or my family was fighting at home, I felt like the person who understood me the most at one point was my pastor, David Kim, David Chandosanim. I mentioned him in a, a couple episodes ago because I, I did an episode about Christianity and mm. of, about how I grew up in the Korean church. So mm. it really goes in depth in my whole background with like how I, I grew up going to Korean youth group. I went to Boston Onuri Kyoe, Boston Onuri Church, which is mm. a satellite of the Onuri Church here in Korea. And mm. I went, my family went there because they went to the Onuri Church here in Korea. So mm. at this church, I, there was a youth group and this one youth pastor, David Chundosanim, he one day he just sat and listened to me. And listen to my struggles and how I like I couldn't talk with my parents and I didn't speak Korean and how like out of place and how I how much of an outcast I felt. And I felt like he really listened, he really cared, and you know he told me that he he said, "Wow, that must be really hard, man. I'm I'm sorry. I, I love you. I'm here for you, man. You know God's there for you." And he really meant it from the bottom of his heart, and that made me want to be a youth pastor. And then what's really cool is he messaged me on Facebook and said, "Mom, I listened to that episode. He congratulated me, and it was really cool." So I, I was all about the faith. And right now, I think I'm in my prodigal son phase. Or uh, me going through a faith crisis in, around college is what, in a big way, prompted me to actually come to Korea to really find myself. Because in a way, me falling away from the faith caused me to feel, well, if I'm not a follower of Christ, or, like, or at least in the traditional orthodox sense of the faith anymore, then what is my identity if not in Christ? Who am I? Who is mine? Okay, am I Korean? Well, maybe I should learn Korean. Maybe if I learn Korean and get in touch with my roots, I can understand my family. I can have more peace with my past and my family. I can become a better son, a better person, and future a better husband and a better father. So mm-hmm. there's so much to talk about here with you, Aaron, uh, in terms of like our personal experiences with faith and Christianity and the church. But also like the bigger picture as well as the history of Korean people and Korean diaspora all over the world and how the Korean mm. church br- brought us together, you know, and, uh, mm. and how the faith feeds us and how it nurtures us and nurtures our community from a sociological, cultural and psychological, spiritual perspective. It's so fascinating, actually. Mm. You know, so I go through these cycles. I go where I like, I'm just like, oh, I hate Christianity. I resent it. It's a disease upon humanity. There are points when I feel like that. And then there are points where I, but there's great high conscious energy. There's great, beautiful, pure conscious energy that is also associated with that heals people. And it's very beautiful. And I cannot deny that having experienced it myself, even though I may no longer ascribe or I may no longer go to church, I still appreciate and I don't want to discount or disparage the experiences and the spiritual nourishment, we'll call it, whether it's just some chemical, you know, reaction and some neurons firing the brain slash the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. you know, touching your soul, either or. So I go through these periods like, oh, I'm like, fuck Christianity, you know, fuck Jesus. And then I'm just like, uh, you know, Jesus was probably a pretty cool dude. And the Bible is chock full of great wisdom, right? And you know, this is why it's survived, it's survived and it's been, you know, read by so many people forever. It's the most widely read book it's because there's still so much wisdom and truth. Aside, you know, with, a, with all like the Old Testament God, like telling the Israelites to go, you know, slay them and the slaves and all that, all that controversial bullshit. The Bible still has great wisdom. And I completely affirm that. And I, and in our own Korean way, Christianity has shaped us to who I am as a person, as an individual, the moral framework and the ethics. Like I, I cannot deny that that's still who I am. It's made my moral constitution, even though I have a problem with it, with 
with the religion, with God, with Jesus, the church, etc. I may have my phys- my yeah. logical, my philosophical, spiritual wrestlings, but I can't deny it. And so that's why, like, I don't want to disconnect or disassociate with Christian brothers, even though I don't mm-hmm. identify as a Christian anymore. In even though, as I would also admit that I'm still Christian in many ways. Maybe uh, yes. Go ahead. If you allow me, uh, just to put this in some uh, context to immigration communities, especially the diaspora, the church in many other countries, Korean churches, say in the U.S. or Germany, they had a additional function outside worship and praise and gathering. It was a place of gathering for networking purposes, you know, community building among the Korean. Getting married. So getting married or hunting a girl, hunting a boy, you know, a lot of things were happening uh, in places like that. And so given that, you know, a lot of immigration, immigrant people have issues, you know, and they, they had to congregate in a church, you know, you had potentially lots and lots of issues, you know, compare that to a, a non like a German in, in Germany, he, you know, I heard this really interesting approach from a pastor. He, he, his uh, ministry is built on, you know, looking after the second generation Korean Americans or, you know, Korean, whatever diaspora. And he said, you know, a lot of our parents, a lot of our fathers were not given the same equal opportunities like a German would get in Germany. You know, they can become a politician or a athlete or whatever, a professional. Many of our parents did not have that choice. And the only way to fulfill and become of something that they believe had worth was business. And so that is a unique perspective. If you think about, you know, we can, it's, it's even hard to relate for me to understand my father's predicaments, not speaking the language, you know, having come as a minor, working the mines, and trying to build something, he didn't, he couldn't pursue other dreams than he was busy making money. And I think eventually that hampers people. And if you have a lot of people like that in, in the congregation, you know, you're prone to see some fights and, you know, intrigues and politics and all the negative things. And I think that's what, you know, the churches in the 80s and 90s used to be in Germany place of gathering of a lot of broken people, a lot of uh, shattered dreams, a lot of sacrifices without being rewarded or recognized. A lot of people were drinking secretly, trying to be somebody else on Sundays. And so, you know, it was a breeding ground for a lot of broken people. Yeah, I, I, I think the church is never healthy, not even today, not even the biggest church, not even Unary. The church is actually, in my opinion, a place of a gathering of broken, messed up people. And therefore, the message of gospel, and therefore, the message of grace is relevant. You know, it's not a meritocracy full of entitlement. It's hardly a democracy. Churches where people come and they come there because they need a savior. They need the the dream of redemption. They need a figure that sort of represents there is hope. And I think us immigrants, 
you know, we, we, we live a life like Abraham and Joseph who had to migrate from place to place. And I think that's how God you know, shapes certain people, characters, uh, even people groups. And that's how I make sense of a lot of things these days. Yeah, and I try to describe that in my book, uh, why hardship is actually a liberation. You know, had it not been for all the hardship I've gone through, being a Christian, feeling that I'm called, God never had an opportunity to surgically remove certain insecurities in my life, uh, traumatic events, you know, being sent away as a two years old, you know, you develop like an orphan mentality, this desire to be successful, uh, self-made and, you know, rejecting everything else, you know, I'm like Mr. Know-it-all. God wants something else. God wants a community. God wants people that are vulnerable yet strong. You know, he wants meek but humble. And I, I think eventually that gave me more, that answered more questions I had than, you know, anything else I was looking for. Do, do I get all the answers? No. Christianity does not provide all the answers. Most of the time, it's a journey trying to learn about who God really is. And it's a journey of discovery for truth by a broken person. Yeah, I mean, I was a broken person in, in the faith and in God and believing in Jesus. It, it, did a, it did a lot for me. You know, I really wanted to give my all to it. You know, I, so I, was a, I went to school for biblical and theological studies. That was my major. And looking back at it, I mean, I look at all my experiences, positive and negative, and I just be like, it made me who I am today. And uh, I'm grateful for all the, the struggles and the hardship because it makes me appreciate life and it makes me more compassionate, understanding per person with, with deeper perspective on all these sorts of issues so that I can even break it down and explain and communicate with people so they can understand the world and their faith and themselves even better. You know, you mentioned it's not a meritocracy, but I sometimes wish I grew up in a meritocracy or I, I sometimes wish that in terms of like succeeding in the real world, producing result and being competent and having confidence as a man, like having confidence in your own body, doing some kind of physical sport. I wish I had that instilled in me as a kid. Instead, I was just like an mm -hmm. overweight kid playing video games, getting stuck in my head and judging myself all day long, wanting to kill myself. So Christianity p took me out of that. But I, I wish in lieu of Christianity and going to church or supplementary to it i wish like i someone or something or some system like martial arts pushed me i wish i had learned more of that discipline i wish i i wish i was more meritocratic i wish i had more merits right in terms of competence of doing something anything you know i was not a great student and i learned guitar but i didn't really i never had a sense of confidence in my childhood and my teens so because I know in your book, you know, there's so many great stories. Your dad gave you $300 and a one-way ticket to London. Um, I, you know, I, some, I read that. I was like, damn, I wish, I wish my father did that to me. I wish my dad kicked my ass. I was the youngest of three. So I was always babied and sheltered from the world. You know, I, but I'm just reading that in that part of your story. I'm going to read this excerpt. When you're working in London at a restaurant, learning life lessons, you said, what I learned during my internship wasn't so much about the actual work itself. That part was mastered early on. It was the lessons that would stay with me for life. I learned to persevere and to go after something I truly wanted instead of waiting for it to be served on a silver platter. 
Working in a place that wasn't ideal or prestigious made me hunger for more next time. I absorbed London's vibrant city and global posture. I was hooked, and I knew after my trip that I was destined for an international career. I went home strengthened by self-confidence. I took on the challenge head-on, and even though it seemed quite impossible, I learned to master it with grit, excellence, patience, and resourcefulness. To this date, I am grateful for my father's Marine Corps-style challenge to fly there with only the bare minimum, and not only to survive and return, but to excel and yield more than anyone could expect. That was the lesson I took away from London during the summer of 1994. And there is that diaspora spirit. That's the cream of the crop. That's like, you know, like that, that's what sets people like you apart. And also your father's attitude and style. And also, you know, I think that German Faustian spirit for challenge and adventure, it's so beautiful. And I think we need to instill that within our generation and then the next generation to come. Because that shit is so fire. Think of billions of Asians, right? Like all the, all the Chinese and Koreans and Japanese. Think, in, you know, especially Koreans. We're so stifled within our Asian collectivist Confucianist structures. And actually, I'm, I don't want to knock on the collectivism or the tradition or the Confucianism. I think it was the best thing for the time. I think it helped us bring us this far. But just to think of all the unlocked, untapped potential that any man or woman has to to just push their comfort limits and just go up to someone that they don't know and even say hi and just to have the courage and the curiosity and the initiative to make a connection, go to another country, try for that job interview. There's, it, it's incalculable in terms of personal well-being, confidence and success, you know, loving yourself, being proud of who you are. And you can't really calculate it, but the potential economic and financial possibilities, right? Because you went there with 300 bucks and then however many thousands of dollars you made from that, from that trip and that excursion. So think of all the, the potentials and the multiples. You know, if there was not just one Aaron Kim or one Mime Kim, but if there were the thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands that we are influenced on our culture or within a subculture spreads out so that that untapped genetic potential is realized. These are the thoughts I have when I read your book and when I think about you and your life. The great thing about this book is that like any auto, real solid autobiography, it's not just a story about, all right, who's this guy and what's his life about and why should I care? But really to an observant reader who has a, you know, a goal in mind, like wanting to learn something, to become wiser, to, be, to learn from a, a different perspective. This is really a great book on how to live a successful, happy life is the way I look at it, is to just put yourself out there like Benjamin Franklin did. because. I remember reading Benjamin Franklin's autobiography of how he grew up in America and how he, you know, became a, a politician, a statesman, a writer, and you know, well known in his communities. He, you know, he he came from nothing. Benjamin Franklin came from nothing. So his autobiography is literally a manual on how to be Benjamin Franklin. And then this book is not just you know pursued by the maker. is is not just you sharing your personal story, which it is. But it's also you know if you're a reader, you can look at it as a way like. What can I learn from this? How can I become like Aaron? What is it that in his story that resonates with me that I can be? Oh, if he can do it, I can do it too, right? So you're setting this precedent for all the people who can read it, for all the people who are maybe you know, in their adolescence and they don't know what they want in life and they don't have confidence. Well, if this guy can do it, 
then so can I, by the grace of God or mm -hmm. Buddha <laughs> or mm -hmm. what have yeah, you. Yeah, you, no, you're um, absolutely true. I mean, the, my intention um, writing this book was we have this word in German called uh, Bildungsroman. Bildungsroman is a coming of age type of genre. Unfortunately, you know, in the West, you know, English speaking countries as well as German speaking countries, that is a very common thing, wanting to learn from others, right? Just the way you described the story and the book of uh, Benjamin Franklin. Um, learning from one another is an honorable thing. But uh, in some society where, you know, you have a different system or a value or worldview, that genre is missing entirely. And I, I can tell you this because a lot of the Korean publisher did not want to publish my book because they didn't understand the entire approach to life because it's here over in Asia, you know, a lot is modeled or is dictated by society or by parents and you live the, the life of what your parents really want to. And I was one of them as well. So I started off in the hotel industry and that story of yours you're reading was basically my first step trying to get an internship in, in an English speaking country, which the closest was uh, the UK. And I couldn't get the, uh, an internship, although I came from a prestigious school. And I said, you know, what am I gonna do? And my father, you know, being a, from a Marine company says, you know, Aaron, this is how you do it. You know, that's what we all do. That's how I came to Germany, one way ticket and a bare minimum, and then you make it happen. And so I, I, I was working illegally in, in a Korean restaurant uh, doing the dishes as well as, you know, manning the bar. And if I had the opportunity and I would gladly take the opportunity, I would uh, spin the, the, the karaoke machine till like uh, the wee hours of the day just to make extra money. And I would meticulously do uh, bookkeeping so that I have money on the side. Because being a Marine Corps, another thing is, you know, you don't, you don't, you're not only going to a foreign land, uh, enemy's territory, and you take possession, you kind of like, you, whatever you gain and win over the, from the war, it's your possession, right? So my dad asked me to bring gifts back, right? So for, in the first week, I, out of the $300, you know, somebody nicks $200. And I'm left with 100. By the time the summer was over, I'm coming home. My dad asked for golf shoes. My mom was getting us, you know, an English scarf, scarf and, and, and bearing gifts. And that was the Korean aspect. The, uh, honor your parents, you know. You know, when you come back, you bring gifts and stuff like that. And uh, it was, it seemed like an impossible task. And all throughout, it seemed impossible. But at the end of the day, I did it. And that gave me such a confidence boost. And I, I kind of like tasted what it's like to be doing this on a regular basis. If I just round this off with one more comment, um, I was, my daily commute to uh, the restaurant, I had to pass through a district, there were, there were lots, lots of offices, you know, people in white collar, well-dressed, you know, sitting in the office doing some, um, you know, looking professional work. That visualization gave me later the strength to, you know, pursue what I wanted to pursue, right? Uh, but it was, I needed to be in London. I needed to do, uh, you know, manual labor just to, um, just to groom that dream of mine. 
Yeah, that's that's amazing. And I think that's glorious, actually. And, and it's really badass that your father told you, hey, son, go to London, come back with gifts, <laughs> the spoils of war. Like, that's so cool, right? And he just, he knew that you could do it too. I mean, otherwise, maybe he wouldn't have sent you or uh, maybe he didn't know. But <laughs> I, I, like, that's just so cool. And it's just like, we are capable of so much. We're capable of so much. Like, if my parents came to, went to America and you know, was able to eke out a living for, for three sons, then like, what am I possible? What am I capable of, of doing as a well? Lot. Yeah. Uh, a lot. You know, and then later on, you know, you're working as a banker in New York city and then Hong Kong as an advisor. I mean, you, you know, you work in finance and you, you, you know, you uh, take care of clientele and I'm sure you have your suit and tie and you live that dream, which is so cool. And you have your VIP parties and you entertain your, your clientele and your friends and you meet people from all over the world. I am very fortunate that in my time here living in Seoul, I worked as a club and party promoter for three years. And I've had the best experiences and I've met like the most amazing people and even people from all over the world. So that when I travel to other countries, then the people that I met hosting who come to my parties are able to host me at their home or, you know, at their club or bar throughout Asia. And so, you know, I could kind of relate that about like entertaining and hospitality. I love that. And, you know, sometimes I wish, sometimes I wish I worked at a hotel, not in these Corona times, but sometimes I wish, oh, it would be cool to like work as like a VIP concierge as a hotel. Like, I mean, I think I can look the part and I think I could do the job as well and just be, you know, make connections with people from all of the world. Sometimes I, I wish I, I had the experience to work at a, like a nice hotel because I, I know what it's like to entertain and to do hospitality. And mm. it's cool because in a way, like that's because I especially now, like I'm, I'm more conscious of finances and money, like the life that reading your story about, you know, being a banker in New York City and then Hong Kong, I'm just like, damn, like I wish I lived that life. I kind of have, I have had my own version of it, which I'm very grateful for, but that's just so cool. You live that life. Do you ever miss it? Um, Working hard, yeah, playing I mean, hard. Absolutely, I, I I think I still do it in in certain ways. You know, I never shy of uh, meeting people. You know, going out for drinks, and you know, so it's part of my current work too. So things, you know, certain things don't change. I, I guess I put less emphasis or importance to it. But you know, those years in in New York, especially, and then coming to Hong Kong, I, I had just turned thirty. There were great times, but, you know, Hong Kong was happening, you know, the entire world economy seemed to be so focused on, on China and every Chinese state-owned uh, company were, uh, were going, going for an IPO listing in Hong Kong. So we had lots and lots of work and my role was very unique in a sense. I was flying in and out of Korea, from Hong Kong to Korea, and I was, you know, representing UBS to build a, a private bank business out of, in Korea. Here's, here's my thing, though. Do I have any regrets or do I want to live in the past? No, because, you know, all things that I've learned and experienced and they all kind of come, uh, accumulate into this sort of experience that I need today. So for the things that I do today, the, the values that I have today, all of them are born out of experiences, good and bad, but somehow they are working towards a good, right? So I'm still building my business. And, you know, for, for those that I don't know what I do, uh, I'm still a family office advisor, meaning, you know, we look after money, we look after 
people's family wealth out of Singapore, advising their, you know, their future investments. And I'm out in Korea because, you know, Korea has a lot of that uh, potential and we do a lot of business development on the ground here in Korea. Yeah. If I look back, uh, all of these foundational years, they sort of built on top of each other. And Hong Kong was maybe one of the experiences where I was free to go and, and, and build a potential businesses that has eventually led me to do what I'm doing today. So instead of being part of a big bang, I'm now running a small shop, which comes with the pros and the cons, but it does give me the liberty to shape my life the way I wanted it to be, uh, especially around kids and other values that I have. Yeah, it's really crazy to see your whole life story and like your different experiences in your book and how it shapes you to the person that you are today, being the head of this family office, which I definitely want to get into. Um, I just want to say I love that story of when you turn 30 years old and you have that big housewarming party at your Hong Kong apartment and like a bunch of people come, colleagues and whatnot. I love stories like that because when I moved into this apartment last year, I had a big housewarming party. This was before the four-person corona limit. Uh, gatherings were still possible. I had like 40, 50 people here. And we have a decent, <laughs> decently sized place with a balcony and a rooftop as well. And it was, it was like out of a movie. It was a great housewarming party. A lot of awesome people came. So, uh, you know, I, I love that you reading about your experiences and then, you know, working in Hong Kong and living that lifestyle until the point where, for the sake of time, we can't cover it all. But, you know, you, you lose your job, right? And then you can't get hired and you can't make money. What was that like for you? That was a, a very long dry period that never seemed to end. It was uh, beyond tough. I feel like, you know, I was, I was the only loser in town. It was horrible. It was just nasty. I didn't need that in my life. Nobody deserves that. And it was going way too long. Every day having an interview, waiting for an answer, but nothing materializing for nearly 12 months. I was yeah. doing that. You and, applied you know, to like every money dwindling. You applied to every bank and institution in Hong Kong. And uh, yeah, you borrowed money from people. You know, your employer, UBS, was not kind to you, apparently, when the, you know, future potential employers inquired about you. So that, I was just like, wow, I can't imagine what a tough time that was. But somehow it led to the point where one of your former clients, Mr. Lee, you know, gave you a phone call one day, right? Would you please tell us the McDonald's story? Okay, so um, this must have been in 2017 in November. I was down to my last couple of pennies. And I had no money. Oh, actually, I had only Korean money. I had no more Hong Kong dollars. So I was... You were 31? Yeah, there about 32. And I had to exchange money at a local money exchange, which bought me a lunch at Burger Set at the McDonald's. And I was proper, proper broke. Nada. Yeah. Nothing. You're a loser. Oh. You're a loser yeah. eating McDonald's in Hong Kong. <laughs> This and, is it. You know, your life is over. By yourself, by yourself, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, describe, de define miserable, you know, and you just take a look at that and, you know, you know your answer. But, and so I'm in, I think I was in Causeway Bay at a McDonald's. And then I walked home because I didn't have the fare for a ticket, fare for the, the subway. Came home and I sort of like decided, okay, this is it. I'm going to, 
this is the end of it. I have no reason to be in Hong Kong. I'm going to move on. I'm going to head back to Frankfurt, Germany, you know, help out my mom in the restaurant. And, you know, that's it. That was my decision. And I prayed about it and I felt quite okay with it. And so, but the consequences were if I leave without um, owning my debt to friends or, you know, other obligations, I was basically defaulting and, you know, ditching, ditching responsibilities. I knew that, but uh, I had no choice. I was a couple months, a couple months late in the rent, bills, um, my phone was shut off, uh, uh, you know, regularly shut off. That's quite important to mention this because that evening on a Friday, I took a nap and I'm getting this call from, from my phone that oftentimes didn't work, right? Back in the days we had Blackberries and, and then I pick up the phone and I see it's ringing. It shows me an unknown number. And uh, as I pick up, um, I get this friendly, familiar voice calling me uh, in the middle of the night. Um, and that was Mr. Lee. And Mr. Lee is basically a former bank client who I was very close to. And uh, he, uh, you know, he's basically doing some inquiries on me. We're having a chat. We're talking about how are you doing, what, what not. And then he tells me this incredible story that he was uh, running out in the woods, uh, exercising, and he felt the prompting of the Lord, like a, a feeling, a voice in his mind uh, to go back and to call Aaron. Uh, and he had that prompting come again and again. He was trying to ignore it and, you know, raising the volume on his iPhone and, you know, doing his exercise up to a point where he felt like, okay, this is pretty serious. This is consistent. So he went back as he was opening his house door, you know, he wives greets him um, and they two have a chat and she shares that she had this prompting independently from him that the Lord was reminding her to get in touch with Aaron. And so the call, they called, they prayed and they uh, wanted to call me, but they didn't have my number anymore because I was using the bank's phone and I had to return the phone and, you know, I had a new phone. And then what happened was um, he reaches me and he um, right before he got in touch with me, he felt another prompting that the Lord was saying, you know, help out Aaron because he's going to build a company that I'm going to bless. And that company is going to be a, a financial, a Christian fund that will finance the great harvest, meaning the great commission, you know, missions work, you know, and that sort of thing. And so the two decide to donate or make investment into, into this brand new venture that they didn't even know about before they called me. And as we were then speaking on the phone, he shared that good news to me. And yeah, it was, uh, it was an incredible experience. Um, within, a, within a day of, or, or two, I was alleviated of all of my debts. I was able to pay back all of you know, the, the late bills, the late rent. I was allowed to pay me a, a decent salary. And then all of the costs for setting up the, uh, the company was taken care of. And they felt, you know, that the Lord wanted me to uh, head back to school and get an MBA. And they were willing to finance that as well. So 
it was a it was the biggest turnaround in my life, uh, a supernatural thing that I've never experienced before. I was set to start my company this way. And the funny thing is, the next day of all of that happened, the first bank calls me offering an incredible job. It was the British bank called Coots, who, who they are the managers of the British uh, royal family, the family wealth. They offer me a role as a Korean banker covering um, the Koreans, a job that, you know, I've been trying to get for so long and it was never opening. And then, you know, both great opportunities uh, came, uh, came my way and it was fantastic. Yeah. Quite a redemption. Yeah. yeah. And then you had to respectfully decline to the gentleman who offered you the job because you felt like the Lord was calling you to manage your Christian funds, right? And later that bank got acquired by the, the Bank of Scotland, was it? Or, yes, yeah, so Bank of Scotland. Post-2008 financial crisis or whatever. Yeah. So maybe it was better that you went to the path that the Lord gave you. So I Absolutely. mean, there's so many, because just to give more context, right? If you grow up in Christian Korean Christian church, you like you'll know that there you'll know missionaries, and you'll go on mission. Didn't mention this earlier, but you know I grew up going on a few mission trips around the states and in retreats as well, which were very powerful spiritual formative experience for me, uh, as they are for many Korean diaspora. But you want to give everything to God, and you want to live like Jesus, and you want to spread His word and whatever. But it takes money to fly to another country and uh, provide money for supplies and whatever. So it's always like this catch twenty two: is you want to go out and serve the Lord, but you also need to make money and like save and have a living. So how do you balance both? How do you do one or the other? Do you just occasionally do missions, or do you just give everything up and then just live live in the tents, live in the huts with um? you know, people in the sticks in whatever country. I mean, you went to Uzbekistan, which is a cool story. And so you saw it directly yourself, like the whole, it's like a financial country. It's like, you want to help the church, you want to be part, and there you are as a man of finance, as a banker. Mm -hmm. And then you're just like, you know, this is, the, this is a problem. There should be like a Christian fund with a, you know, a potential double bottom line that makes a social impact, you know, as well as a financial impact. So like this is something sustainable so that you know people can help other people out not just spread the word but also like you know help feed and educate communities which is why i i think it's so amazing that you know the you know mr lee was just like hey man you that christian fund idea you had you got to you got to do that that's right yeah and then you you share your whole story about you know getting getting it incorporated in the cayman islands and reporting it in singapore and all that i mean i i love all this like nerdy corporate legal framework stuff now since I started a company last year, like a, a small little LLC. So it's just like these things all like fascinate me a lot law, finance, and, and like regulatory frameworks and how it works and how societies structure all these things. How has it been, you know, since you started your fund? So uh, maybe starting off with the, the word that was given to me and called the prophetic word, or, or, you know, was that eventually that my company, Kairos Capital, will be managing 40 billion US dollars. Yes, 40 billion. And 40 has a certain significance within the Christian circles. I won't get into all of that stuff, but who talks like that? And, you know, who am I that I will be doing this? You know, so it was, it was, everything was a bit beyond me. And so to answer your question, I was launching Kairos Capital in uh, 20, in, in 2008. Uh, late part of 2008. 
And, you know, as you remember, May of 2008, that's when really the financial crisis started to roll out in a massive form. And I had moved to, from Hong Kong to Singapore because the regulatory environment in Singapore was a lot more suited for people like me. Singapore as a nation was approaching, had a different strategy approaching financial services rather than Hong Kong. Hong Kong was very centric to China and to the equity market. Whereas in Singapore, they were focused to manage wealth of uh, nations and individuals. So they wanted to have the people on board that had the relationships. So they lowered the bar, uh, the, the, the entry bar. And so you could just register and start managing people's money. So the, that was called the external, external fund management scheme, I believe. Anyways, nothing worked out the way I thought it would work out. That in a nutshell, and not once, but you know, the entire time. It was uh, so challenging to be raising money. And I had everything going for myself, right? I came from a, a reputable bank. I was managing money for other people. So therefore, I had all the relationship in the place. And they trusted me, which is a very important part of our business. Otherwise, they would never uh, give out money. They need to know that you, you can perform. And two, you're a trustworthy person. And, and maybe they help you out and having the money managed. So, but because of 2008, the financial crisis and during the years when I left the bank until I started my own business, the bank gotten more and more into trouble. And one of the issues was they were selling lots of uh, financial products, maybe very toxic, risky, and sticky. And if you have those three things in combination, people tend to lose money at the wrong time a lot of it. So during the global financial crisis, a lot of my clients had lost like 50% of their portfolio and they were no, they were in no place to, to help me out to, you know, see the fund that I was creating. So on top of that, I had just gotten married. You know, I met Reese and, you know, just got married and moved to Singapore and I was building a team. You know, you, you were required to have a team. So you had expenditures. Luckily, I was hosted in, a, in somebody else's office, so I didn't have um, those type of expenses. But it was a monumental task to launch anything during the global financial crisis. Yes, to your answer, yes, it was challenging. It was going backwards, you know, not towards the 40 billion, but towards like zero and minus. <laughs> but I, you know, I stuck with it. I was going around the world, uh, raising money from, you know, my investors and network people. And I was promoting my business. I was doing everything that I needed to do. But I realized there was a sort of like a pattern in the conversation with the clients, you know, and, you know, less so about me wanting money, but them asking me to organize and, and raise money for them. Because they were business owners, they themselves had gotten into trouble during the global financial crisis, and they needed to have an extra line of investment or some sort of debt funding. And I realized there was a bit of an opportunity to, do, to create a business, a consultancy advisory business for all these families, rather than managing their money uh, on, on my platform. So I was getting good at it, too. So eventually I switched gears and instead of doing a hedge fund, a global macro hedge fund, 
I became more of a corporate advisory guy doing deals, you know, doing deals in, in crazy places. Uh, why? Because that's where you have capital scarcity, meaning my competitors are not there and cost of funding is high. And so my services are valued. So yeah, that's how it all came about. I can't imagine, you know, you raising your kids in Singapore as well while trying to get deals done. Then you move back to Korea. What was it like for you to move back to Korea? That was in 2018. And my wife was pregnant uh, with number four, Noah. And we had originally, since Ian was born, all of our kids had been born in Korea. And then we would go fly back to Singapore because it was very expensive in Singapore to have a kid. You know, it would cost you at least $20,000. So us being Korean and nationals, you know, things were free over here. And, uh, we would also uh, receive a lot of the government subsidies. So it was a no-brainer, right, to come to Korea. And we, that's the same, that was the same plan for us, come to Korea, give birth to Noah, and then eventually head back. But there was a one difference. Uh, the difference was we had to pack all of our stuff and put it in storage because consequently, like, coincidentally, um, if there's such thing, my lease had run out in Singapore. And instead of like maintaining an empty apartment for four or five months, we decided to put things in storage and then we fly out and then look for an apartment once we come back. And since then, I've been in Korea for the last three years because when I came, you know, I gotten so busy with work until Corona hit. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the dreaded question, how has Corona affected your business? It was tough, very challenging because a lot of the Korean investors needed my services because I was the guy who bringing the deal from overseas. They valued my network and my ability to originate deals more than anything. So uh, because, you know, during the corona, corona uh, pandemic, people were not able to travel. People really couldn't really invest into any project. That was one thing that I had been working for the last two years until we were in the middle of Corona. And then some of the retainers that was on to service some of the clients, they had been canceled as well. So very quickly, within a few months, we ran into a lot, lots of financial problems to a degree where we had to give up a lot of the privileges that we had in, you know, living in Korea. Yeah, I, um, I don't want to spoil too much for the book. Again, it's a great book. I'll say it again by the end. But one of my favorite lines in this book is, I'm going to say it, at the point of writing this book, my family and I are homeless. We are financially bankrupt and we have no choice but to live out of a tent. Being homeless was obviously not our goal in life, but was the result of many different circumstances that have emerged over the last few months. My family consists of six members. My wife and I have four children. The oldest is Ian, an eight-year-old followed by Liam, who's seven years old, and Anais, our only daughter, who has turned five years old this year. Noah's our youngest, and he is two years old. And I'm just like, wow. So you went from that to... And, and then the next sentence, you, you lived in a luxurious 3,000 square foot apartment in Hanamdong. You went from that to living in a tent. And that's when I met you <laughs> last August. Uh, and you're just like, you were like, you're like, Reese, honey, this is a great opportunity for us to like go camping. Because I remember going camping, you know, in my dad's Volvo back in Germany. So we need to do that for our kids. And when I met you, that's what you told me. Like, yeah, we used to go camping in Germany. And so I want to do my for kids. And I just thought you were just the, the coolest fucking dad ever. 
you know, the coolest fucking <laughs> Korean German dad, like going camping on the East Coast of Germany. But now, after reading this book, I found out the truth. You are a loser, Aaron. <laughs> you are a failure of a husband and a father. <laughs> How does that make you feel? <laughs> I'm, I'm totally kidding, man. Uh, no, I, I, uh, I, uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm in, I'm, I'm in awe, man, because you are, you are not, you are far from an incompetent person. You're one of the most intelligent, talented men that I've, that I've met. And so anybody knows it doesn't matter how intelligent, how well you plan things. And you being Korean German, you plan things very well. You're very meticulous in your planning and you're so methodical, more than 99% of people I, I know, you know, life still throws some really hard curveballs at you. How's the pressure? It must be a lot on you, man. You know, I guess it goes back to the experience of being an immigrant. It goes back to that the training by my dad to not to see the things the way they are, always questioning the perspective that's presented to you. It's also being resourceful and making the best out of the situation. You know, I had a choice. I could have fought uh, legally to stay in my apartment and I could have won them by miles because coincidentally during that time when I had to move out, a week before that, there was a law passed in Korea where, you know, the rights of the tenant was protected. But, you know, I knowing that and knowing I had that option, I was uh, waging that against the, the value of being a Christian and honoring contracts, you know, even if that meant, you know, I'm uh, landing on the street, I chose to do that on the back of my family with four kids. And that camping idea, that's the, you know, that's a saving grace. That's how, you know, that was the beautiful part of it. But, you know, not having any option was really, really difficult. Having that decision and being questioned by, you know, all the people, why are you doing this? You know, you don't have to suffer through this, you know. Why are you being so strong-minded? You know, just compromise. Compromise and give in. It's okay. But I didn't want to do that. And, you know, and then while I was praying, I had this notion it would be awesome to go on a camping trip. We have a car, you know, and we don't have, we just have a car. We don't have nothing for camping. And once I was able to convince my wife to do that trip, which was really, really difficult, her being, you know, more meticulous about cleaning, you know, health and cleanliness and all of that. Once she was on board, everything started to flow. And what a trip that was. We were on the road for nearly like from July 15 to October 15. I was, I was basically had the greatest life uh, experience. And Korea, if you remember that summer was a wild summer full of rain and monsoon, floods and historical typhoons and stuff like that, right? Totally. We didn't get rained. We didn't get rained much. You know, I felt like God's hand was protecting me. I didn't understand the reason why we had to go suffer through all of this, you know, turmoil and, you know, being kicked out of the apartment, you know, being on the street. And it doesn't make sense to me. And it doesn't, you know, I haven't found a 100% answer yet. Uh, but lately, I've been contemplating those times have actually really developed my prayer muscles and really my faith in God that he became a provider in my life. Well, what, what that's would, okay for me to, yeah. 
you, I mean, well, what would you say to um to to the critics, right? To be the devil's advocate, or or what if I'm just like Aaron? You know what? You're just a, a leech upon other people and to your clients and to other on the general. You, know, you Christians, you're just leeches upon humanity. You know, this isn't God providing for you. This is just you praying on like the guilt or the pity of other people. What do you say to what do you say to that voice? Because I mean, that's how some people might feel, right? People who aren't believers or people who question your motives or your character, they'd be like, like this guy's just a loser, right? He he's failed. He used to work in finance, but now look at him. Like he can't get his shit together. Uh, corona aside, how do you do you do you ever have thoughts of doubt? I mean, I'm assuming mo- everyone you know is like really kind and awesome to you, and they are understanding. But do you ever have you those know, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I do have to have those thoughts. It's usually when I'm the most critical, less forgiving with myself, right? Do I have them often? No. Do I care what people think? No. And maybe I am. Maybe I am in sort of way, you know, less productive in the society than, you know, what people at my age do. But to me, it doesn't matter because, you know, I live my life. You know, I pursue my dream. I contribute in different ways to the society. I I tell you a crazy example. You know, we had a nice turnaround. Uh, We came out okay from this ordeal in the summer of 2020. And we were financially stable. We paid off all of our loans. Uh, We have money in the market and we also have savings. That sort of turnaround, you know, it cannot be explained other than the existence of God and that God wants to provide into your life. Now, it gets better. My wife, right? I'm the expert. I I know like how to invest and put money to work in in the US uh, equity markets. But this time around, last October, my wife decides to get into the game and she kind of like takes a couple thousand dollars and she puts it into the US market and she's a newbie. She's, she is a novice. And she makes, I mean, there was a bull run during uh, October, November, shortly before December, Christmas. There was a, a fantastic bull run of a lot of the tech stocks and, you know, US specs stocks. And, and she makes a heck of a money in a very short period, so much so that, you know, it was more than we just needed. And then at the same time, I get this unction while praying that God says, hey, listen, that money, you know, I favored your wife. I just wanted to make sure that you don't get the credit. I get the credit, but that money is not for you. It's for somebody else that I want to provide into. So uh, hang tight. I'll let you know when that situation comes. And then out of the blue, I get a call from Indonesia from an old business partner who happened to have dengue fever and corona at the same time. And that person lands in a coma for four months. And miraculously, he walks out of the hospital and he was broke. He had no place to live. And, you know, we knew that money was meant for him. So my wife, out of, you know, no, no questions asked. We as a couple pray and decide to support the person financially. That person is doing really, really well and is now, uh, you know, helping other people. All to say, if I was a leech in the society, then I must, uh, you know, then maybe people are right. But God's economy works in a different way. I love that answer. 
I think, uh, and the reason why I bring it up is because I, I think we all deal with doubt. It's, it's okay to admit that we, you know, we have feelings of doubt and sometimes like attacks on our self-confidence, either from, you know, our, our past or call it Satan, the enemy, or from like other people. And so I just want to say, Aaron, it's, it's really amazing that, you know, you do what you do and you're on top of that with your wife and your, your kids. I remember you told me that the most important thing is uh, last year is you told me the most important thing is not just making a lot of money, but also being a good father to my children. You said like, that's the most important thing. And I, and I, I, I agreed a hundred percent. Damn, this guy gets it. Like this is, it's, it's more important to be a, a really good father than to just like make a lot of money. And I remember you telling your story about your father, how while you were working back when you were working in Hong Kong, you were in service and you, you felt compulsion and you understood where your father was coming from and the struggles that he went through and how you later gave him a phone call. Would you please retell that story? Sure. My father and I, because of all the reasons of uh, religion and church, uh, we had a broken relationship uh, since I was 16 onwards, right? And the result of that was I was always overseas, uh, traveling, trying to stay away, avoiding contact. So we, we literally had no relationship and I didn't want to talk to him. And I only called when I needed money or, you know, I needed a favor. But so our, our relationship was really cold. This goes back to that pastor, Keith Park, who had a ministry for reconcil reconciliation between the first and the second generation of Koreans in church overseas. And he, he said a couple of things that really touched my heart and made me really relook introspective search of who I have become in vis-a-vis father-son sort of relationship. And my father at that point, he's exactly... He's exactly 30 years older than me. He had become uh, less prominent in his uh, financial power in, in, in country, you know, as a, as a person, as a man. He's getting older up the age and so on and so forth. So I get this strong conviction that I needed to speak to my dad for the first time in many, many, many years. Um, and so I was in the office on a Sunday. Sorry, how many now, years had it been since you talked to him? 12. It had been 12 years since you had like a real conversation yeah. with him and you're in, the, okay. Yeah. And then you're in the yeah. office. I'm on a Sunday, I'm in the office and I'm sitting in front of a phone. I'm looking at the phone and I'm, should I call? Should I not call? I'm having all these questioning myself, second guessing. Eventually I pick up the phone and I call him and, you know, Korean fathers, they're, you know, not the most vocal and emotionally driven people, but, you know, they sort of like command orders and, and so on and so forth. And we were having this, you know, weird conversation and I'm trying to avoid the subject and we're talking about golf and eventually it's like, hey, you didn't call me uh, internationally to talk about golf. What's going on? If you have nothing to say, I'll, you know, I'll hang up the phone. Because it's expensive. Yeah, yes, and and he was about to hang up. Uh, so I said, oh, oh, stop, stop, dad, dad, sorry. You know, there is something. And, you know, I said to him, and it was very difficult just to put it in words, but I was saying, hey, I don't know whether any one of our siblings, me included, said that to you, but I just really want to say that I love you 
And when I said that word, I love you, something broke in all of the walls, the defensive mechanism, all of that had broken away. And, um, and I love you, I, I, I wanna honor you, and I appreciate that you sacrificed so much to get us through life and helping us. And it was so quiet at the end, uh, other end of the phone. And then soon after I hear only like, click, he hung up. And I had the greatest regrets that I did that move, that I took the risk to, re, you know, trying to restore relationship. And I had all the doubts and I said like, that's it, that's it. That was my one try and I'm walking away, not only from the office, but also from the relationship with my dad. And I just went straight um, towards the bar. I just want, I was ready to drink, man, <laughs> right? And halfway, halfway to Lang Kwai Fong, this is where I lived. My mom calls me back and she never calls me, right? She never calls me and she calls me. And the first words were like, what did you tell your mom, uh, your father? You know, I'm like, what's going on? Why? Why? I don't know what you said. Well, it must have been something really, really bad because now he's in his room. He's, he's got the lo door locked and he's crying. And this really gets me because my father had obviously carried a weight in all of his life and no one recognized, no one acknowledged him and thanked him. None of his kids said anything. You know, we always have our problems with our fathers and, you know, we're so entitled, but what about their side of the story? And when I said what I said, that I loved him, you know, that I wanted to honor him and that I'm appreciative of his sacrifices, First, it came at a, you know, unexpected and something emotional, you know, he's a very strong, stern, you know, guy. And that moved him so much. And he was embarrassed to cry in, in the living room where our phone was. He, he just snuck back into bedroom and, you know, he cried buckets. A couple of weeks later, you know, you know, I have my mom on the phone for some reason and I like to talk to her but I'm I'm always the one calling her she tells me hey you, you need to know you know you need to know this what you said at the, on the phone at that time really changed this my father's spirit you know he goes to the uh, you know meets his golf buddies and he kind of like tell, brags about hey I don't know what your son told you or uh, <laughs> my son told me he loves me and you know he you know, all of that stuff. And, and it became a point of bragging to his friends. This is so Ajashi, right? This is so Korean affection expressed in a funny way. We don't, I don't get it all the time, but I knew one thing. It, it had changed. Something broke away, something heavy, something broke away from him. And since then, we have the greatest relationship. Something got completely restored. And I give uh, credit to God for, for helping restoring broken relationship in our family. Yeah, I mean, I almost cried buckets when you were telling me this story as we were around the campfire in Yangyang. 
near the by the beach. I was just like, wow, this guy's story is uh, amazing, and I'm so glad you can finally share it here for other people here, so that we we can all cry buckets together, man. Because <laughs> <laughs> like think think about it. your dad went to the country club and bragged to all the other Ajaxis, the other middle aged men, about you know how his son loves him. So then maybe they you know their own petty way like well, maybe I should reconnect with my son too. Why doesn't my son tell me that he loves me or whatever? And just hearing that story makes me think about my own family. And then hopefully anyone who's listening to this, especially if you're Korean Asian diaspora, you can find this as an opportunity have some perspective of what your parents went through. If you have a shitty relationship with your dad, you don't talk anymore. Maybe you can understand what the stuff that they went through, what he went mm-hmm. through. I mean, that's just an amazing story. And I think I remember you telling me that since then, you know, it changed your family and then you started telling each other i love you you started saying i love mm-hmm. you you know and like that's not something mm-hmm. that's too common in asian families is it mm-hmm. but i i think i was lucky enough that from a young age that i think my dad did say that to me so i think i was a bit lucky in the sense i did get some love from my dad more so than my brothers my dad was very hard and mean towards my brothers but then very nice and he spoiled me because i was the youngest so i just want to en- encourage anyone who's listening who has a rough time or a rough relationship with their parents, no matter what the reason is, of course, it's case by case, but you can always maybe think about what your parents went through and how it's hard for all of us. It's hard for them. And sometimes all it takes is just one person to just really connect and express some sincere gratitude and appreciation and, and love, right? And I just love that, you know, you shared that story. So you did that hard work so that your kids don't have to deal with that. Do you tell your kids that you love them? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do they do they say fact, that they love you? Yes, uh, that's an important thing. I'm I'm trying to be very international. In, intentional. Um, everything that happened uh, in my ancestry line, you know, um, none of the good stuff stops here. And I want to create a free and loving environment for my children and 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 the generation that follows. Expressing love, you know, obviously is good for communication, and but it has a, a wonderful uh, effect, and a lot of people don't know, but a father's voice instills uh, confidence in, in a child, uh, and that confidence comes from knowing who I am. The confidence comes from identifying the identity of that I'm loved, and identity and love is almost one thing that's why god presents himself as i am i'm god i am so i my voice in the family has a has dual effects you know it instills confidence which my children have you know they know who they are they're loved and they're not some random kids i am very interested in that whole subject influencing children and raising children and i have lots of them so I should be interested. And yeah, at this point, I just wanted to tell you that had I not restored the relationship with my dad, um, I would not be able to pass on a lot of the, uh, the valuable teachings to my children. Yeah, and now you can pass them on to other people in, in your interactions with other people, like as, as you pass on some of that love to me, brother. And now we can mm-hmm. pass on this love to other people and to anyone listening right now who's having these family problems, you can take steps and you can take actions and you can, you can think about your past and your family history and you can come to peace and understanding and love with mm-hmm. who you are and your parents, even if they make mistakes as we all do, or even if they do some terrible things, if you understand where they come from, you're allowed to, and you forgive them, 
that releases some of the power that they have over you so that you can become more unburdened with your past. If anything, for a selfish reason, just consider it, right? And if this is what you want, like you want a family, a loving, earnest, sincere family filled with love and admiration, respect and appreciation for each other, then you can have this too. This is what I want to share with people. This is not something that's beyond your reach. If people who come from difficult family backgrounds or dysfunctional relationships can find peace and love and fulfillment, then you can do it too, right? If a bum like me or if a bum like Aaron can do it, then maybe you can do it too. (laughs) Oh, I, I know we're a bit over time, but just to wrap this up, couple of questions about your children and your fund and your book like what vision do you have for your children first what kind um, of people do you want them to be i want them to you know my greatest hope for them is to for them to know god and have a tangible relationship with god and if that means they don't attend church so be it i want them to honor and love god you know um in terms of you know, vocational um, role, I or what university they should go, that takes second place. It's not even relevant to me nowadays. I, I know God gifted them with a calling. If they have talents, and if they find their calling in life soon enough and apply themselves through their talents, it's exactly what God wants. And I want them to walk on that. You know, whether it's something so trendy like a YouTuber or an influencer or back in the days, it was being a banker or consultant or doctor, you know, it doesn't matter. I don't want them to walk or live my dream or the dreams of their parents, but I want them to take a lot of risk and find their own personal calling by God and live that out. That's awesome, man. And the second one, what is the vision for your funds? So I'm in a very interesting stage right now. We have a foundation almost ready in in Switzerland, and I'm about to transfer all of the shares of my company to the foundation so that future proceeds are going to flow into the foundation and from there into missions. Missions, setting up schools, you know, funding refugee camps and doing humanitarian works and, you know, and making sure that, you know, the gospel is spread to those that want to hear the gospel, people that are looking to hear the Christian message. Yeah, and so do that and make sure that that vision outlives me, meaning I have a particular view on this whole thing. I am just a caretaker, like a steward to this business, and the owner is God. And so that's why I'm transferring the shares of my company to a foundation with that setup, one day when I'm not around anymore, you know, the owner of the company is going to be the foundation. So not even my kids, not even anyone else. It's just a natural thing that survives. Wow, that's awesome. You're going to be like one of the missionaries that first came to Korea and started hospitals and schools and universities that everyone you know, goes to today. You're going to be the Korean-German diaspora missionary version of that with a finance background. That's super amazing, man. And what about your book? What do you want people to get from this book? You know, I, hopefully I can awaken the dormant church, people that are in the church but feel unfulfilled, feel jaded, 
giving them a fresh hope of that their life matters in, in the construct of Christianity, that they have a peculiar, particular calling, especially young people or people that are in their 50s and uh, are dead worried about losing their job, which is very uh, common here in Korea. I want, I want to give them hope, whether they're on their first half of their life or the second half of their life which is a uh, terminology coined by this author, Christian author. He, he believed that everyone has a second half and the second half represents um, where you yield life to God and let him run your life and see what comes out of it. And usually that life is amazing. Yeah, so I want to give hope to people. You, you're giving me hope, man. And I hope, I hope that whoever is listening to this also gets some of that hope because we all need it in this world, man, in this crazy post-corona 21st century world. If people want to reach you, how should they do it? They can visit my book site. It's called www.pursuitbythemaker.com. Also, I have a personal uh, website, which is linked. It's www.aaron-kim.com. Awesome. Any closing remarks from you, Aaron? No, I just wanted to t- uh, you know, tell you personally, but also your audience, uh, it was awesome being here. You, you, have a, you are gifted uh, in bringing out people's story. You, know, you make other people quite comfortable. And it was a pleasure being here. Allow me to share my story. Yeah, it was a great fun time. Indeed. And... I feel like, you know, I'm sort of going into the second half of my own life. I'm pushing 30 and I feel like my priorities are shifting, you know, like physiologically with a back injury, right? That's, that's one of my excuses why I haven't been publishing regularly because you need to sit down for long periods of time to edit and work on your computer. But again, the, the timing of it all is so auspicious, right? I call it the Lord or Jesus or whatever. But I, I want to share this. When I came to Korea in 2012, uh, one of the first people that I met, one of the first friends I made was a bartender at a local spot in Nitewon. Uh, that what I would frequent. I would go to a bar just to see this guy. And that guy became one of my best youngs. Uh, his name is Lad. Uh, so that years later, I even went to his wedding. And he introduced me to another couple. And that was Hana and Koli. So Lad, uh, who married Naomi, you know, these two introduced me to Hana and Koli. And last year, Right, Hana and Koli opened up their bar in Itaewon in Gyeonggi-dan called Koli's. So I went there Good. almost every day, and as I went there, I met Christoph and Maxi Mueller, the Mueller's, who you mentioned in your book, helping you out with the camping in the summertime and all that. And so when when me, when Koli, Hana, the the Mueller's, and a big group of us went to Yangyang on the East Coast, thanks to the Mueller's, I got to meet you your wife, Reese, and your, your four children. And I'll never forget seeing you playing on the beach with your children, speaking to them in German and English. And I'm like, who is this guy? And then just, <laughs> just meeting you nearby the campfire, enjoying a drink and just talking about our lives and sharing our stories. And like I said, we, we got to do this podcast, talk about your book, and, and here we are. So for me, I told you that you know, coming to Korea was the best decision of my life. And then the one of the first people that I met in Korea, this chain of, you know, this network of meeting awesome individual after individual, it's led to me meeting you and for us to have this conversation. And I just want, want to share that how 
how amazing that is with the audience and with you and like how grateful I am for this whole experience and again how grateful mm -hmm. I am to meet you and your wonderful wife Reese and your four amazing children they're like the most well-behaved smart funniest kids ever and, <laughs> Thank and you. Any, any father would should, would be proud to, to have them you're doing an amazing job man and it doesn't matter what everyone else says like fuck them no one can do what you're doing right trying to you know ele elevate of funds and uh, you know a foundation to help you know people around the world while being a, um trying to be a good dad with all the learning from all the mistakes and wisdoms of the past you've lived quite a full life and you still are and you have so many more years of that to come so i just wish you from the bottom of my heart just all the good fortune and the wisdom that you'll need to uh, overcome all these challenges and uh, I'm sure your children were, are going to turn out to be fucking phenomenal in this world, whatever they choose to be. And so if there's anything I can ever do to help, you know, you and your family, please let me know. That's it. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Mime Time. Thank you, everyone. Is there anything you want to say? Anything else? No, it was a wonderful experience. You did a great job. Thank you so much, really. Thank you so much, Aaron. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a great day and talk to you next time. Peace. Bye. Bye.